0: A 17-point defeat does not usually imply a bag of mixed goods by the team who was on the losing end, but when you examine Arizona State's 34-17 loss to then number 11 Oklahoma State on the road, surprisingly or not, there were some bright spots on both sides of the ball for the Sun Devils. Nonetheless, it was also Saturday contest that featured plenty of shortcomings for ASU. And to break down the good, bad, and the ugly for Arizona State, I'm joined by staff member Cole Topham, who was with me at Stillwater last weekend. And later on, I'll be joined by Zach Venuenzi, who covers Eastern Michigan for SB Nation, and he will provide us a very detailed insight about Arizona State's upcoming opponent Saturday night in Tempe and what we can expect to see out of the Eagles. So thank you for tuning in. Let's get this thing started.
1: I was living in a devil town.
2: I didn't
1: know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the
0: Devil's Junkies podcast. I'm your host and devils.com publisher, Hode Rubino. I'm joined by my staff member, Cole Topham, who was with me at Stillwater for Arizona State's 34 uh, 17 loss to Oklahoma State. Cole, coming out of that game, you look at the At the score itself, and maybe not a big surprise for most Sun Devil fans, for most of the media covering the team. But uh, before we get into the particulars about the office and defense, uh, what do you take, like, from a macro point of view, if you will, about the performance of the Sun Devils in Stillwater?
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought they were competitive, and there were definitely some key mistakes made in both offense and defense. Um, The the secondary uh, looked a little bit rusty. Guarding, you know that that dynamic Oklahoma State attack that kind of was multi pronged. We saw a rushing quarterback um, for the first time this season, and Sun Devils. It kind of it kind of seemed like they started the game pretty apt to play against that type of tempo and and just that type of pace that Oklahoma State was setting. But by the end of the game, the defense looked a little gas gassed, and the offense just didn't have. Um, the right amount of tricks to really you know mount a comeback and and match that sort of firepower
0: so let's uh, talk about the offense in specific and you know it's one thing to have a slow start against you know Oklahoma State but this starts to be maybe a little of a pattern because it also was a slow start against Northern Arizona and obviously that's you know a a country mile wide uh, gap of caliber but what do you make about, uh, about the slow offenses? Because actually ASU, as we both know, had a, had a great drive uh, to begin the game. I mean, sure, they only came away with three points, but eight plays, 78 yards. And then that uh, was really nothing but uh, punts and a fumble uh, the, the, rest, the rest of the uh, first half. Is it really as simple, in your opinion, as just the offense uh, just trying to gel, even though, like I said, the first uh, series, they look like a pretty well-dolled machine or do you do you feel that maybe the approach of uh, Arizona State really not uh, testing this Oklahoma st- State secondary, which I thought was an Achilles' heel, uh, may have been a mistake? Uh, looking back at the uh, futility of that uh, first half.
3: Yeah, I didn't really think it had anything to do with the players, you know, trying to gel or find their place. I thought that first drive was pretty convincing, pretty explosive. Valaday had a 40-yard run to start the drive. Then Badger had a great catch to get the offense um flowing into scoring position. And they just didn't capitalize on that opportunity. They had to kick a field goal. Uh, Emery fired high and behind Messiah Swenson, his six-seven tight end target. And I just feel like the Sun Devils, they kind of got away from that aggression that that they that they began the game with. They were a little bit more content to run the ball than they should have in the second quarter. And I think that that hurt them um, because they they tried to basically recapture some of their 2021 identity of just trying to control the clock and, and run the ball and really assert themselves in the ground game. But it was pretty clear early on that picking apart the mismatches and finding one-on-ones to the air was what was going to win the Sun Devils, the football game. And I feel like they kind of strayed more and more from that um, in this, in the second quarter. And then, when they started explosive in the third quarter, I think they even still repeated their mistakes and went away from that too fast.
0: And I also feel like, look, the defensive front for Oklahoma State, I mean, maybe aside from Utah, is probably the best ASU is going to see all, all season long. And you could talk about all the pressure that, that they did bring on Emory Jones, but I, I would contend that actually against a defense like that, just having that, uh, that quick release uh, which Emory Jones, I think, is very capable of, finding those gaps uh, in, in in the second level just because they're bringing extra defenders so those gaps are there are theirs to be had. And more importantly, just because Emory Jones did miss Messiah Swinson badly in the end zone, and that's why ASU had to set up for a field goal in that first drive, uh, I thought that it's almost like Glenn Thomas, the offensive coordinator, shied away even more just because maybe of that one miss to Messiah Swinson because I think him... Angeline and kindness for that matter. And maybe even uh, Ben Ongada and uh, Xavier Valde from the backfield really had, I thought, a lot of uh, room uh, to operate, especially when Oklahoma State was bringing uh, those defenders d- just to get, you know, three yards via the air versus three yards uh, via the ground. Do uh, you also feel that it was maybe a, a missed approach by Glenn Thomas and ultimately Herm Edwards in that regard?
3: Yeah, I just thought... It- it almost seemed like ASU was kind of unprepared to handle that type of pass rush because it was one of the things that jumped out to me immediately in my film breakdown was just how how fierce the front seven was and just having, you know, three caliber, um, you know, NFL caliber pass rushers, most namely Brock Martin, um, Trace Ford, Colin Oliver. Those guys seemed like they could get pressure from three man fronts. They were physical, they were punchy and ASU just from the tape um from the broadcast footage that that I was watching they knew they would have their hands full and that the offensive line would be in for a pretty tough game and so we kind of expected Glenn Thomas to resume the same approach that he came out against NAU with which was just you know sort of like quick hitting passing game hitches um screens stuff to get the ball in your playmaker's hands you know with urgency and and just allow them to work in space from there. And we didn't really see too much of that uh, throughout the game, really. Um, there are were, there were a few instances uh, of that, but, I mean, for, for, the, for the most part, it kind of seemed like Glenn Thomas called an entirely different game than he did against NIU a week ago.
0: So do you feel that ASU uh, being aggressive as they were in the second half was really the difference? I mean, obviously not enough to overcome Oklahoma state ultimately, but, but nonetheless, I mean, do you think that that aggression of uh, finding, uh, you know, geo Sanders and Elijah Badger getting the passing game uh, more involved? Do you think that's maybe some positive that can be built upon and maybe also change Glenn Thomas's thinking in a way that, okay, I do want to control the clock. I do want to win the time position battle, but it doesn't always have to be done by running the ball even though you have very capable running backs but you also have very capable wide receivers that can move the chains just as well
3: yeah I think it can be I mean Glenn Thomas we spoke with him after the game and he you know didn't seem like he regretted being stubborn running the football at all and you know hopefully that's sort of a something he'll look at in the film room this week about and be like you know maybe we should have passed the ball more in and maybe we should have accelerated our tempo on offense a little bit in, in getting the ball out of the pocket because the problem with what happened during the game was Emery Jones wasn't allowed to exercise his, his dual threat abilities and play extension qualities because his pocket would shrink pretty rapidly and it would pinch inward um, you know, pretty quickly by that Oklahoma State front. And so whenever he did look to run the football, or, or extend plays outside the pocket, he really had nowhere to go. Um, and th- that just tells you that these plays are taking a little bit too long to develop and, and that maybe the Oklahoma State secondary was a little bit more uh, formidable than previously thought. Um, regardless, it, it means that these plays needed to come out of the – these throws needed to come out faster and in time, and I don't think that's not necessarily a fault of – Emory Jones at all too, because there were, there were some throws that he just had to flat out, you know, huck towards the sideline or downfield in front of his receiver and in front of the secondary to just simply get the ball away.
0: Let's um, move on to the other side of the ball for Arizona state. And I think uh, if you told me before the game call that Oklahoma state is only going to average five and a half yards of play, I would say, Hey, you know what? This is going to be a pretty close game. Maybe a game that ASU, uh, comes on top, especially because ASU averaged actually 5.8 yards of the game, uh, yards of play. I'm sorry, but uh, the devil's always in the details. And yes, they only averaged five and a half yards of play, but they did that over 84 plays. And really, if you count the penalties, that's really 93 plays that the ASU defense was on there on the field. And players like Merlin Robinson, Kyle Sole. I don't know if they even uh, took off a down, and the rotation even when you have that many number of plays, uh, really almost uh, seems uh, ineffective. Uh, Do do you really chalk up uh, ASU giving up uh, 34 points, 465 yards of offense to Oklahoma State, really just a matter of fatigue, uh, maybe even more mental than physical? Or do you think there may be some other elements that really jumped at you that really handcuffed this ASU defense from perhaps doing a better job of uh, trying to shut down a very explosive cowboy offense.
3: I think it was two things. I think it was penalties for one, especially in the secondary. I thought there was a lot of pass interference calls, holding calls. Joe Moore had a pretty bad personal foul call when he went Spencer Sanders was obviously just dumping the ball into the sideline and he gave him a little shove for extra measure, which tacked on some unnecessary yardage onto that drive um, specifically. But Yeah, for the most part, I thought the secondary looked rusty to Marcus Davis, um, making his first start from from injury didn't have the best game. Uh, He had some opportunities for some picks that fell through his fingers. Um, But you know, he was also called for for some pass interference calls as well. Um, and I I think that's just him getting back into the, into the flow of things. So penalties for one. And then, like you mentioned, um, 14 of those points came in the fourth quarter. Um, there was one three-play 65 drive that happened immediately after Elijah Badger caught his touchdown, wiping any sort of momentum that ASU had away. And then the Cowboys answered that with a, just a grueling 13-play drive that really wore down the ASU defense, and you could really see the fatigue set in. And Oklahoma State, they run a, a high up-tempo attack. Um, they rush to the line. They snap the ball. They take advantage of the defense not getting set um, or comfortable in their alignment. And uh, you know, we we saw that throughout the game. And Kyle Soli he said that he thought ASU was a well-conditioned team, but even due to that, even with that conditioning, they were feeling the effects in the first quarter, fourth quarter for sure. So.
0: ASU right now is facing another quote-unquote cupcake game against Eastern Michigan. I mean, probably a better team than Northern Arizona, but nonetheless a game where ASU is already a heavy, heavy favorite over two touchdowns last I checked. Is it one of those games where, sure, you want to uh, really uh, implement all the lessons learned from this Oklahoma State game on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're also in that quandary where Eastern Michigan – in the way you perform against that caliber of opponent may not be that much telling how ASU will be looking into Pac-12 play following the next week, which opens with a very tough home game against Utah. I I mean, how how do you assess the performance we're about to see on Saturday? I mean, can it be a good indicator that, yes, ASU learned all this lessons against Oklahoma State? Or, again, because you're just playing Eastern Michigan, maybe there's not going to be that much to take away – from that game, assuming ASU takes care of business and does uh, play like a two, three touchdown favorite?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a different approach than the first sort of quote-unquote cupcake game that they played against NIU. Um, ASU didn't really want to reveal too much on film for Oklahoma State, knowing that it was going to be, you know, a tough road matchup. And with so many transfers on the roster that Oklahoma State would be looking at those, a- any sort of plays that those guys were on the field for as, as information and Intel. Um, and now that that game is over, then I think the offense can be ha- have that less in the back of their minds and be a little bit more free flowing with their, with their play calling and and exactly how they utilize their playmakers. And I, I think so far Messiah Swenson has been underutilized by the offense, um, despite being an obvious mismatch. And despite, everything that we've heard from the coaching staff about employing both him and Conyers and Case Hatch for that matter and 12 personnel and, and really, you know, take exploiting those, those guys against the defense. Um, So getting Swinson involved would be encouraging to see and building off Elijah Badger's strong foundation um, in a breakout game um, just a few days ago would be very encouraging to see for ASU.
0: And, uh, you know, last last question, um, when you look at the, just the overall, you know, mood of the team, and I know that I, I saw a great um, um, tweet from Michael Matus that says, uh, you know, only lessons, no losses, or maybe something like that. In other words, uh, really emphasizing that um, as long as you uh, do draw the right conclusions, and, the, and I would say the more productive conclusions out of this game, that you you can actually play better. I mean, do you feel that ASU, the fact that they did go in some periods of time, and I'll be very careful when I say that toe-to-toe with, with Oklahoma State, obviously we're down only three points, uh, you know, pretty deep uh, in, in, into the second half. Do you feel that just from a mental standpoint, this is something that can give them conf- confidence to the future again, as much as don't want to overlook Eastern Michigan, but really give confidence to uh, the teeth, of uh, Pac-12 play that starts in a couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously the the sting of defeat, the sting of loss um, hurts in the moment. But I think, you know, after those gut, you know, knee-jerk reactions have, have faded, then the Sun Devils will, will look at the game and realize that they kept it in reach for nearly the entire outing um, against a team that is now ranked inside the top 10 in the AP poll. Um, They weren't embarrassed, like many predicted would happen. And the score, you know, uh, was not, they didn't run up the scoreboard on the ASU's defense and there were no meltdown moments like there were against BYU or Utah or Washington state, namely last year. So I think the team competed despite all of the, you know, all the struggles in the off season with the coaching staff turnover and um, all the transfers, both in and out of the program. And so I think that's why the growth is significant. And it seemed like head coach Herm Edwards was able to to realize that, that the team did, did do some growing on the field that, that evening. And even though it wasn't the result that they wanted, and a lot of players thought they could come into Stillwater and, and were confident that they had a chance in this game, that they still played a lot better than, you know, many predicted them would. Okay. right. Well, Cole, as always,
0: I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, helping uh, uh, break down this game. I look forward to your um, film analysis uh, this week and really every week uh, throughout the season. Um, Thanks again. And and for all of uh, Cole's uh, fine work, uh, you can find it on devilsdigest.com. Cole, thank you for joining the podcast.
3: I appreciate it, Ho. Thanks for having me.
0: A 17-point defeat does not usually imply a bag of mixed goods by the team who was on the losing end, but when you examine Arizona State's 34-17 loss to then number 11 Oklahoma State on the road, surprisingly or not, there were some bright spots on both sides of the bowl for the Sun Devils. Nonetheless, it was also Saturday contest that featured plenty of shortcomings for ASU, and to break down the good, bad, and the ugly for Arizona State, I'm joined by staff member Cole Topham, who was with me at Stillwater last weekend. And later on, I'll be joined by Zach Venuenzi, who covers Eastern Michigan for SB Nation, and he will provide us a very detailed insight about Arizona State's upcoming opponent Saturday night in Tempe and what we can expect to see out of the Eagles. So thank you for tuning in. Let's get this thing
1: started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down. About the Devil Town.
0: Welcome to the Devils Junkies podcast. I'm your host and devils.com publisher, Rubino. I'm joined by my staff member, Cole Topham who was with me at Stillwater for Arizona state's 34, uh, 17 loss to Oklahoma state. Cole coming out of that game, you look at the, at the score itself and maybe not a big surprise for most Sun devil fans, for most of the media covering the team. But uh before we get into the particulars about the office and defense uh what do you take like from a macro point of view if you will about the performance of the Sun Devils in Stillwater?
3: Yeah, I mean I thought they were competitive and there were definitely some key mistakes made in both offense and defense. Um the, the secondary uh, looked a little bit rusty guarding, you know, that that dynamic Oklahoma State attack that kind of was multi-pronged. We saw a rushing quarterback um, for the first time this season. And Sundoubles, it kind of it kind of seemed like they started the game pretty apt to play against that type of tempo and and just that type of pace that Oklahoma State was setting. But by the end of the game, the defense looked a little gas, gassed, and the offense just didn't have um the right amount of tricks to really, you know, mount a comeback and and match that sort of firepower.
0: So let's uh, talk about the offense in specific. And, you know, it's one thing to have a slow start against, you know, Oklahoma State, but this starts to be maybe a little of a pattern because it also was a slow start against Northern Arizona. And obviously that's, you know, a, a country mile wide uh, gap of caliber, but what do you make about, uh, about the slow offenses? Cause actually ASU, as we both know, had a had a great drive uh, to begin the game. I mean, sure. They only came away with three points, but eight plays, 78 yards, and then that uh, was really nothing but uh punts and a fumble uh, the, the, rest, the rest of the uh, first half. Is it really as simple, in your opinion, as just the offense uh, just trying to gel, even though, like I said, the first uh, series, they look like a pre hold machine? Or do you, do you feel that maybe the approach of uh, Arizona State really not uh, testing the Oklahoma State secondary, which I thought was an Achilles heel, uh, may have been a mistake uh, looking back at the uh, futility of that uh, first half.
3: Yeah, I didn't really think it had anything to do with the players, you know, trying to gel or find their place. I thought that first drive was pretty convincing, pretty explosive. Valdez had a 40-yard run to start the drive. Then Badger had a great catch to get the offense um, flowing into scoring position, and they just didn't capitalize on that opportunity. They had to kick a field goal. Uh, Emery fired high and behind Messiah Swenson his six seven tight end target and I just feel like the sun devils they kind of got away from that aggression that that they that they began the game with. They were a little bit more content to run the ball than they should have in the second quarter, and I think that that hurt them um, because they they tried to basically recapture some of their 2021 20, identity of just trying to control the clock and and run the ball and really assert themselves in the ground game. But it was pretty clear early on that picking apart the mismatches and finding one-on-ones through the air was what was going to win the Sun Devils the football game. And I feel like they kind of strayed more and more from that um in this in the second quarter and then when they started explosive in the third quarter, I think they even still repeated their mistakes and went away from that too fast.
0: And I also feel like, look, the defensive front for Oklahoma State—I mean, maybe aside from Utah—is probably the best ASU is going to see all, all season long. And you could talk about all the pressure that that they did bring on Emory Jones, but I, I would contend that actually against a defense like that, just having that uh, that quick release. Uh, which Emory Jones I think is very capable of finding those gaps uh, in, in, in the second level, just because they're bringing extra defenders. So those gaps are there, are there's to be had. And more importantly, just because Emory Jones did miss Messiah Swinson badly in the end zone. And that's why he had to set up for a field goal in that first drive. Uh, I thought that it's almost like Glenn Thomas, the offensive coordinator shied away even more just because maybe of that one missed Messiah Swinson, because I think him, and gelling kindness for that matter. And maybe even uh, Ben Ongada and, and, and uh, Xavier Valley from the backfield really had, a thought, a lot of uh, room uh, to operate, especially when Oklahoma State was bringing uh, those defenders d- just to get, you know, three yards via the air versus three yards uh, via the ground. Do uh, you also feel that it was maybe a, a missed approach by Glenn Thomas and it ultimately Herm Edwards in that regard?
3: Yeah, I just thought... It it almost seemed like ASU was kind of unprepared to handle that type of pass rush because it was one of the things that jumped out to me immediately in my film breakdown was just how how fierce the front seven was and just having, you know, three caliber, um, you know, NFL caliber pass rushers, most namely Brock Martin, um, Trace Ford, Colin Oliver. Those guys seemed like they could get pressure from three-man fronts They were physical. They were punchy. And ASU, just from the tape, um, from the broadcast footage that that I was watching, they knew they would have their hands full and that the offensive line would be in for a pretty tough game. And so we kind of expected Glenn Thomas to resume the same approach that he came out against NAU with, which is sort of the quick hitting, passing game, hitches, um, screens, stuff to get the ball in your playmaker's hands you know, with urgency and, and just allow them to work in space from there. And we didn't really see too much of that uh, throughout the game, really. Um, there there are a few instances uh, of that, but, I mean, for, for, the, for the most part, it kind of seemed like Glenn Thomas called an entirely different game than he did against NIU a week ago.
0: So do you feel that ASU uh, being aggressive as they were in the second half was really the difference? I mean, obviously not enough to overcome – Oklahoma State ultimately, but but nonetheless, I mean, do you think that that aggression of uh, finding, uh, you know, Geo Sanders and Elijah Badger, getting the passing game uh, more involved, do you think that's maybe some positive that can be built upon and maybe also change Glenn Thomas's thinking in a way that, okay, I do want to control the clock. I do want to win the time position battle, but it doesn't always have to be done by running the ball even though you have very capable running backs but you also have very capable wide receivers that can move the chains just as well
3: yeah I think it can be I mean Glenn Thomas we spoke with him after the game and he you know didn't seem like he regretted being stubborn running the football at all and you know hopefully that's sort of a something he'll look at in the film room this week about and be like you know maybe we should have passed the ball more and and maybe we should have accelerated our tempo on offense a little bit in, in getting the ball out of the pocket. Because the problem with what happened during the game was Emery Jones wasn't allowed to exercise his his dual threat abilities and play extension qualities because his pocket would shrink pretty rapidly and it would pinch inward um, you know, pretty quickly by that Oklahoma State front. And so whenever he did look to run the football or or extend plays outside the pocket, he really had nowhere to go. Um, and th- that just tells you that these plays are taking a little bit too long to develop and, and that maybe the Oklahoma State secondary was a little bit more uh, formidable than previously thought. Um, regardless, it, it means that these plays needed to come out of the these throws needed to come out faster and in time. And I don't think that's not necessarily a fault of Emory Jones at all too, because there were, there were some throws that he just had to flat out, you know, huck towards the sideline or downfield in front of his receiver and in front of the secondary to just simply get the ball away.
0: Let's um, move on to the other side of the ball for Arizona state. And I think uh, if you told me before the game call that Oklahoma state is only going to average five and a half yards of play, I would say, hey, you know what? This is going to be a pretty close game. Maybe a game that ASU uh, comes on top, especially because ASU averaged actually 5.8 yards of the game, uh, yards of play, I'm sorry. But uh, the devil's always in the details. And yes, they only averaged five and a half yards of play, but they did that over 84 plays. And really, if you count the penalties, that's really 93 plays that the ASU defense was on there on the field. And players like Merlin Robinson, Kyle Sole, I don't know if they even uh, took off a down. And the rotation, even when you have that many number of plays, uh, really almost uh, seems uh, ineffective. Uh, do, do you really chalk up uh, ASU giving up uh, 34 points, 465 yards of offense to Oklahoma State? Really just a matter of fatigue, uh, maybe even more mental than physical or do you think there may be some other elements that really jumped at you that really handcuffed this ASU defense from perhaps doing a better job of uh, trying to shut down a very explosive Cowboy offense?
3: I think it was two things. I think it was penalties for one, especially in the secondary. I thought there was a lot of pass interference calls, holding calls. Joe Moore had a pretty bad personal foul call when he when Spencer Sanders was Obviously, just dumping the ball into the sideline and he gave him a little shove for extra measure, which tacked on some unnecessary yardage onto that drive um, specifically. But yeah, for the most part, I thought the secondary looked rusty to Marcus Davis, making his first start from from injury, didn't have the best game. Uh, He had some opportunities for some picks that fell through his fingers. um, But, you know, he was also called for for some pass interference calls as well. Um, and I I think that's just him getting back into into the flow of things. So penalties for one, and then, like you mentioned, um, 14 of those points came in the fourth quarter. Um, There was one three-play 65 drive that happened immediately after Elijah Badger caught his touchdown, wiping any sort of momentum that ASU had away, and then the Cowboys answered that with just a grueling 13-play drive that really wore down the ASU defense, and you could really see the fatigue set in. And Oklahoma State, they run a, a high up-tempo attack. Um, they rush to the line. They snap the ball. They take advantage of the defense not getting set um, or comfortable in their alignment. And uh, you know, we we saw that throughout the game. And Kyle Soli, he said that he thought ASU was a well-conditioned team, but even due to that, even with that conditioning, they were feeling the effects in the first quarter, fourth quarter for sure. So.
0: ASU right now is facing another quote-unquote cupcake game against Eastern Michigan. I mean, probably better team than Northern Arizona, but nonetheless a game where ASU is already a heavy, heavy favorite over two touchdowns last I checked. Is it one of those games where, sure, you want to uh, really uh, implement all the lessons learned from the Oklahoma State game on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're also in that quandary where Eastern Michigan – in the way you perform against that caliber of opponent may not be that much telling how ASU will be looking into Pac-12 play following the next week, which opens with a very tough home game against Utah. I I mean, how how do you assess the performance we're about to see on Saturday? I mean, can it be a good indicator that, yes, ASU learned all this lessons against Oklahoma State? Or, again, because you're just playing Eastern Michigan, maybe there's not going to be that much to take away – from that game, assuming ASU takes care of business and does uh, play like a two, three touchdown favorite?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a different approach than the first sort of quote-unquote cupcake game that they played against NIU. Um, ASU didn't really want to reveal too much on film for Oklahoma State, knowing that it was going to be, you know, a tough road matchup. And with so many transfers on the roster that Oklahoma State would be looking at those, any sort of plays that those guys were on the field for as, as information and Intel. Um, And now that that game is over, then I think the offense can be have that less in the back of their minds and be a little bit more free flowing with their, with their play calling and and exactly how they utilize their playmakers. And I I think so far Messiah Swenson has been underutilized by the offense um, despite being an obvious mismatch and despite everything that we've heard from the coaching staff about employing both him and Conyers and Case Hatch for that matter and 12 personnel and, and really, you know, take, exploiting those, those guys against the defense. Um, so getting Swinson involved would be encouraging to see and building off Elijah Badger's strong foundation um, in a breakout game um, just a few days ago would be very encouraging to see for ASU.
0: And, uh, you know, last, last question, uh, when you look at the, just the overall, you know, mood of the team, and I know that I, I saw a great um, um, tweet from Michael Matus that says, uh, you know, only lessons, no losses, or maybe something like that. In other words, uh, really emphasizing that um, as long as you uh, do draw the right conclusions, and, the, and I would say the more productive conclusions out of this game, that you you can actually play better. I mean, do you feel that ASU, the fact that they did go in some periods of time, and I'll be very careful when I say that toe-to-toe with, with Oklahoma State, obviously we're down only three points, uh, you know, pretty deep uh, in, in, into the second half. Do you feel that just from a mental standpoint, this is something that can give him conf- confidence to the future again, as much as don't want, don't want to overlook Eastern Michigan, but really give confidence to uh, the teeth? of uh, Pac-12 play that starts in a couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the sting of defeat, the sting of loss um, hurts in the moment. But I think, you know, after those gut, you know, knee-jerk reactions have have faded, then the Sun Devils will, will look at the game and realize that they kept it in reach for nearly the entire outing um, against a team that is now ranked inside the top 10 in the AP poll, Um, They weren't embarrassed, like many predicted would happen, and the score, you know, uh, was not – they didn't run up the scoreboard on the ASU's defense, and there were no meltdown moments like there were against BYU or Utah or Washington State, namely last year. So I think the team competed despite all of the, you know, all the struggles in the offseason with the coaching staff turnover and um, all the transfers – both in and out of the program. And so I think that's why the growth is significant. And it seemed like head coach Herm Edwards was able to to realize that, that the team did, did do some growing on the field that, that evening. And even though it it wasn't the result that they wanted, and a lot of players thought they could come into Stillwater and, and were confident that they had a chance in this game, that they still played a lot better than, you know, many predicted them would. Okay. right. Well,
0: Cole, as always, I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, helping uh, uh, break down this game. I look forward to your um, film analysis uh, this week and really every week uh, throughout the season. Um, Thanks again, and and for all of uh, Cole's uh, fine work, uh, you can find it on DevilsDigest.com. Cole, thank you for joining the podcast.
3: I appreciate it, Ho. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us now on the Devil's Junkies podcast is Zach Venuenzi, who covers Eastern Michigan ASU's upcoming opponent for SB Nation uh, website. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing?
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, doing pretty good. Uh, just enjoying a little bit of cool weather here in Michigan. I think uh, tonight it's in the in the in the mid sixties here tonight. So uh, you yeah, know that may be maybe quite the cold spell to you know the Sun Devil fans, but. Uh, it's it's pretty nice here, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a, it's a pretty much equivalent to a blizzard over here in the Valley of the Sun when it drops to the sixties or fifties. Um, but let's uh, talk about the game in hand: Eastern Michigan Eagles. And um, before we delve into the offense and defense act, Eastern Michigan uh, right now one and one, a loss to Louisiana, one of the better G G five teams out there, a team that had a lot of success in previous uh, seasons. Obviously, they're Uh, Previous head coach, uh, Billy Napier, now in Florida. Billy Napier also was an offensive coordinator once upon a time for the Sun Devils. But when you just look at the record itself in a vacuum, Zach, uh, is that what you expected so far from the Eagles? A surprise in a good way or a bad way?
2: I I would say it's about what I expected. I do think like the, the first game against Eastern Kentucky was a little bit closer than we would have liked. But I think when you look at that, you know, it's week one. Uh, you don't have preseason games like the NFL does. And then also Eastern Kentucky's a pretty strong FCS opponent. And then they turned around and they beat Bowling Green uh, this past week. So that game doesn't, re- didn't really worry me. I think the concern for me was Eastern came out against Louisiana and they looked so strong and uh, you know, a two touchdown lead and then fell apart after a rain delay, <clears throat> a-, a lightning delay and uh, the halftime that they had w- in Louisiana. and and the game just changed. So, you know, it just kind of has to wonder what team you're getting. Are you getting the first-half team from Louisiana or the second-half team from Louisiana? And so far, being two games into the season, considering that you played, you know, the opener, and then you played a very good uh, Louisiana-Raging Cajun squad on the road, it's hard to get a read on this team. And I don't know, being an Eastern Michigan guy – I really don't know if going against a Pac-12 school is going to give us too much more of an insight um, than than what we know at this point already.
0: So uh, when I look at the stats uh, from last year, and I've been, I've been covering Arizona State for 22 years, I don't think I ever saw a stat sheet, uh, a cumulative season stat sheet that is, that is almost an even Steven. I mean, Eastern Michigan actually had uh, given up uh, 30 points uh, per game uh, last season and has scored uh, 30.2 uh, uh, points um, per contest. When you look at what happened um, last year and coming into this year, was this a year that you expected the Eagles to really maybe get over the hump and do a little better than the 7-6 and six mark? Or maybe was it um, somewhat of a rebuilding season for the program?
2: Well, I I think that kind of depended on who you asked. You know, you talked to Coach Creighton, and you kind of got the sense that he felt that they had some guys uh, that they would be real close to, you know, being around that mark, maybe even better. And then you talked to some of the locals and with some of the talent that they were losing and had some transfers out of the program, like every program. I know Arizona State's had a lot of transfers, and a lot of people were kind of down on them. But I I think the thought process was – that this was going to be a team and it it still very well could be, but I think the thought process is that this is a team that is going to be around that seven, you know, six, seven win mark. Um, Probably not a front runner in the Mac, but probably a team that's going to be competing for bowl eligibility. Um, That's the hope anyway. I don't think anything, the first two weeks has, you know, changed that. Um, But as we get deeper, you know, we may learn more and, and have some more concerns. Um, I think right now, though, there is some talented pieces on this team, and I think the pieces will show through once you get into the Mid-American Conference play. Um, but it, a pretty tough non-conference schedule it is going to make it tough to really get that real read on them. But I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't think that Eastern Michigan anymore is a rebuilding program. It's kind of a reloading program. Uh, in the sense that you have kids graduating or going to the nfl but then you have other people who are it's a player development type program who are developing and taking that next step and eastern michigan's been very consistent right around that six seven win mark the last you know several seasons Um, trying to get to that eighth win and get into the mac title race has been a tough next step but i wouldn't say that this is an expected rebuilding year um, by any means
0: So uh, I know usually I start these pieces or maybe everybody else does uh, talking about the offense of the opponent, but I'm actually going to talk about the defense because there are some glaring numbers and I guess glaring, um, you know, in an adverse way, if you're an Eastern Michigan uh, fan, um, basically uh, giving up an average. And again, I know the season's um, a real short one so far. And just like you shouldn't have week one overreaction, you probably shouldn't have week two overreaction, but 41.5 points yielded on average, uh, most of the damage, uh, done via the air again zach when when you came into this season and looked at the schedule of the first couple of games and and know the personnel on defense uh does this stat uh maybe catch you by surprise or maybe uh part for the course
2: well i would- I would say. Uh, kind of par for the course right now. I think when you look at this team coming into the year, they made some moves, uh, which seems weird to be saying for a college program, but now that's kind of the way that college football is. You have that off season where you can bring in some veteran pieces, but they brought in a linebacker, Chase Klein from Michigan state who had played against Arizona state a few years ago. Um, Joe Sparacco from Boston college came in. So they brought in some pieces to kind of beef up that defense and so far it just hasn't done enough. Uh There's still those concerns. It's been kind of a, a bend, but don't break defense this year. Um, in some sense, but, you know, I think you saw in the second half against Louisiana, they did break. So there is some talented pieces, a defensive end, Jose Ramirez. He's somebody who's on the senior bowl watch list. And uh, he'll probably have an opportunity to play on Sundays. Russell Baden, uh, Blake Bogan are very strong defensive backs. But I think the issue that we're seeing is depth. They had some injuries coming out of the, uh, the spring game, Mikey Haney, Haney, a defensive end for us towards ACL, Uh, And then the last game out, you know, the second half when Louisiana was able to put up all their points, you started to see a lot of players leaving with injuries, a lot of players uh, leaving with cramps and things of that nature, which probably considering where conditioning is or isn't, that could be a concern going into this week's game down there in uh, Tempe, Arizona with the heat and everything down there. So something to watch there, but it's just, it's been an issue with depth. It's been an issue, um, really, since the Max Crosby era. Trying to find that right defensive alignment, the right defensive pieces. There's some talented guys, like I said, you know, mainly Jose Ramirez, Jordan Crawford's a big uh, nose tackle who won't look out of place going against a Pack 12 opponent. But it's just it's been a struggle on defense so far this season, and that's been the case the last couple of years.
0: So uh, you talked about defensive alignment. Uh, What can we expect from uh, the base defensive scheme of the Eagles on Saturday? And if you're an opposing offensive coordinator, how do you think is the best way to attack this uh, unit for Eastern Michigan?
2: Well, I I think it gives you an opportunity to throw down the field. Um, There just hasn't been all that much pass rush coming from them right now. Jose Ramirez is somebody who can get to the quarterback quarterback. But if you double him, uh, you know, have the quarterback roll away from his side, you know, that's something that's that's a struggle. And then I think when you look at the other side, the defensive end, Grant Truman is probably more of a run stopping defensive end next to Jordan Crawford. Um, So I I think this is a a good passing matchup for Arizona State. We saw some big plays from uh, Louisiana. So I think the opportunity is there where they can maybe drive down the field. you know, and, and see some deep passes, uh, especially if you have time in that pocket. One thing that's interesting about EMU is they don't necessarily have the three linebackers. They more so; it's more of a four-two-four kind of, uh, you know, the the excuse me, four-two-five, where you have the five defensive backs, and one will kind of come up into the linebacker position um, on occasion but really they only go with two linebackers, Chase Klein and Jill Sparacco, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Tariq Spates may rotate in there at, at some points, but it's uh, kind of more of a defense that is geared towards being able to drop in that pass coverage, um, but it's still something with the lack of pass rush that's been an issue.
0: Okay, so let, let's move on to the uh, other side of the ball. And um, averaging uh, f- uh, 31.5 points up, per game over over the first uh two contests. Obviously not a bad uh figure. Uh, and uh looks like uh you know quarterback actually might be one of the strongest suits uh, for the Eagles. Uh Taylor Powell, who uh was who is a transfer from Troy and once upon a time uh actually uh was at Missouri for, for three years, uh is is a quarterback for the Eagles. How would you describe um him as a as a signal caller and again short season as it may be What uh, do you think he can bring to the table in 2022?
2: Well, what's interesting about Taylor Powell is uh, the previous quarterback was Ben Bryant. Ben Bryant transferred in from Cincinnati, played one season at Eastern, then transferred back to Cincinnati, and Taylor Powell came in from Troy. Well, when Taylor Powell had left Missouri previously to go to Troy, he was Eastern's number one pick over Ben Bryant to transfer in, but he picked Troy over Eastern. So it all comes full circle. He ends up here. Uh, He's a guy who came into the program. He took on a leadership role. He's done a lot of bonding with the wide receivers. He's an experienced young man. He did the Manning Passing Academy. Uh, He's not somebody who's going to wow you with his feet. He's more of like a sneaky runner where if you allow him to get out of the pocket, he'll pick up those five or 10 yards. He's no Jake Plummer, uh, you know, that the Arizona State fans would know. But he's more of a, a drop back passer. Uh, Doesn't have the strongest arm, uh, more of an intermediate short outs kind of guy. He's got some talented receivers, which helps. But I would say that, you know, one of the things that was interesting is when he came into the program, he completed 80% of his passes in the spring practices. So that kind of speaks to his efficiency. Um, so I, he has the capabilities, had a little bit of a tough game last week against Louisiana. Some of that was on the receiver. Some of that just, you know, was trying to do too much late in the game with the ball game getting away, but he's a very capable passer. He's got power five pedigree. Uh, I don't think he'll be overmatched in, against Arizona state.
0: And, um, you know, another, we talk about the glaring stats, uh, over here, um, on the offensive side this time. Um, Just um, um, having uh, just uh, 82 yards of uh, rushing, um, you know, so far, is that um, a number that uh, really uh, does uh, surprise you? Did you expect this offense to be as pass heavy as it has been, albeit only for the first
2: two weeks of the year? So that's something we kind of saw last year where they shifted to a past heavy attack. I think if you ask Coach Creighton, he would really like to have a more mobile quarterback. I think when his offense is at the best, it's when he has somebody who can kind of tuck and run and kind of give you that read option, that dual threat kind of look. But we haven't had that the last couple of years. So I I do think that puts more of a pressure on the running game. Samson Evans is a tremendous running back. He might lead the Mac in touchdowns. He's a, just a short yardage, power back, uh, can do a lot of different things, a, a very nice young man and all that. Um, but, he, again, he's just a, more of a short yardage guy. Jalen Jackson is a five foot eight on a good day transfer from Lamar. He's got speed. He can catch the ball out of the backfield. But if you listen to the descriptions on those two, you don't have a complete back. Darius Boone, the Oklahoma native is probably the most complete back, but he struggled to kind of get going on the ground in his first two, three seasons in the program. So, you know, you, you have these different pieces, but they haven't been able to come together and have that one back who can take 15, 20 carries and and just take over a game and get over a hundred yards. And I think that's led to it being more of a pass-happy attack. But also, I think Eastern Michigan, when you look at the wide receivers, there's some tremendous talent there that they have, and I think that also leads to it becoming somewhat pass-heavy. But I'm sure if you talk to Coach Creighton, who's also the offensive coordinator, he would love to see that running game step up a little bit more, be more complete, um, and kind of have some guys be able to do more than just a one-dimensional type role.
0: And because it is so pass-heavy, Zach, uh, is this an offense that uh, would um, often run uh, four, four, four wide receiver sets, or do they or like just to keep it more with the um, "quote unquote" traditional three, three wide receiver alignment uh, on offense on most snaps?
2: I would say that it's probably more of a traditional uh, alignment. Typically, you know, with the you'll we're still a midwestern program, you'll see the tight end in there quite a bit. Uh, Use more so this year, it seems, in a passing game than as a blocking option, though. Um, but th- they'll go three wide, and then you know usually you'll have like your inline tight end, but also they'll split spread them out. But typically, if you see a four wide receiver package, one of those is typically our tight end spread out wide.
0: So, uh, same question asked you about uh, the defense, also about the offense. Uh, as an opposing defensive coordinator, it would seem on its face that uh, maybe. As a as an de- opposing defense, you might be tempted to drop into a zone uh, because the running uh, game threat is not uh, so much there, but you really have to pay extra attention to, I would say, a formidable passing game uh, by the Eagles. As an opposing uh, defensive coordinator, is that the approach you would take, or maybe you put a little uh, spin on that?
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably, you know, I think we've seen some of that uh, from Louisiana. And I, I think that'd probably be, you know, the best course of attack. Um, you know, the Eastern receivers, I think if you look at the receiving game, that's Eastern strong suit. It's probably the best receiving core in the MAC, top to bottom. So I think if you can limit them, especially Hassan Badoun and Dylan Drummond, then I think Arizona State will be in a good place. Uh, and and I, that becomes a little bit easier to do without that threat of a run game. I think we'll find out real, real quickly on the first drive if it's going to work or not work. Because if Eastern can get in there and kind of lower their shoulder and power some runs and, and find some – positive yards, then I think that's going to open up the passing game. But if you get behind early and you have to go to the passing game all day, you're going to have those defensive backs stepping back into coverage, linebackers dropping back, defensive ends coming on just peer pressure. You're going to start having some problems and start seeing some turnovers like you saw last week against the Raging Cajuns.
0: So, um, you know, obviously Eastern Michigan is, is a team that Arizona State fans are not familiar with at all being – three time zones away and whatnot. Um, it looks like it's a program that had, you know, good, maybe even, you know, be, be better better than good success uh, being uh, in, in uh, three, three straight ball games if you take away the, the wacky COVID year. Uh, you know, is, is this a program that you feel is just a solid Mac program just trying to uh, maybe really get to a more of an upper echelon a Mac team, or do you feel that Eastern Michigan is really just, you know, is 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 where it is, with maybe not a whole lot of opportunity to uh, to really advance itself to the upper echelon, but also definitely good enough not to be a uh, cellar dweller on a consistent basis.
2: Well, I, I, to answer that question, I think you got to tell a little bit of the story, and, and that is before Coach Creighton, It was one of the toughest jobs in the country. It just tremendously long losing streaks. You know, one win here, two wins here. Uh, you know, not really any community pride. And Coach Creighton has come in and kind of built up the program, created an identity. We have the gray turf, kind of a going to work, you know, factory mindset blue collar, and that's kind of turned it around to where now they have become one of the more consistent programs in the Mac, usually around six, seven wins competing for those bowl games. But I think it's getting to that point now where the locals are getting restless where, hey, okay, we're making bowl games where before you make a bowl game and it's, you know, cause for a parade. Well, at the Mac level, you're not playing really so much for the college football playoff you are playing to win your conference. You're playing to win bowl games and Eastern hasn't made a Mac championship. They haven't won a bowl game. They, we do this thing between Eastern central and Western called the Michigan Mac. You know, we haven't won that in several years. So when you start looking at those things, I I believe the locals would say it is time for the program to take the next step. And I'm sure coach Creighton would agree as well. Uh, there, it's getting to that point where somewhat kind of those mortal victories are where it's like, hey, this was once good enough. This was once cause for celebration. But now it's been so consistent where it's great that it's been one of the more consistent programs in a Mid-American conference with six, seven wins. But what are you going to do next? And they've invested significantly in, you know, their training facilities, the, the football facilities, all of that. They've invested in marketing. They continue to invest in the stadium. They're doing a lot of that. The recruiting classes are getting better and better. Very active in the NIL, very active in the transfer portal. But at some point, that only means so much if you don't get over that six, seven wins threshold and bring home some type of trophy, Rather, it be a MAC division, a MAC conference, a bowl game, or an in state Michigan MAC trophy. So I guess the question of is the ceiling still rising I would like to say that it is with their investments and how far it's come but until they take that next step it's really hard to say that's
0: that's, uh, that's fair enough and last question Zach there have been a lot of upsets especially last week in in college football ASU obviously wants to avoid uh, being um, one of one of those upsets in the week three over here but when you look at um, you know Eastern Michigan, you look at their matchup with Arizona State. Uh, what do you think are some of the uh, keys uh, for for the Eagles? Uh, um, maybe not necessarily to pull an upset, but maybe keep this game much closer uh, than, than a lot of people expected with a line that's uh, hovering right now as ASU right around minus twenty uh, favor.
2: Well, I would say for Eastern Michigan, I, if you look at the program. Three of their last four games against Big Ten opponents, Eastern Michigan has won. They beat Purdue, they beat Rutgers, they beat Illinois. Now, obviously, going out west is a different animal, and this is a different team than those teams. But this is a program that has had that blueprint before by getting up for the big games, by you know, just pulling up their bootstraps, t- you know, tightening their helmets up, and just going to battle. So this is, again, a different team, but if they can limit the turnovers, limit the penalties, and just hang in there and get some help from Arizona State, I think they'll have a chance. What scares me is just going out west, you know, circadian rhythms, you know, sleep, not sleeping, the humidity, the the heat. I mean, I know it's more of a dry heat, but the heat and, and just all those challenges, the home field advantage that is Arizona State, I don't know how big of a crowd will be there for Eastern Michigan against Arizona State, but uh, just being on the road out west, that's going to be a significant challenge. But I just think if you can play near perfect football, find some big plays, find some turnovers, then I think Eastern might have a chance. They have some talented pieces that it could come together for them. And the program has had that track record of success against the Power Five schools before. The coaches have been here, if even some of the players haven't but it'll be a tall task.
0: Okay, Zach. Well, I I really do appreciate your insight here. And uh, if folks uh, out there want to find you um, online on social media for the coverage of Eastern Michigan uh, leading up to Saturday night and during Saturday night, and maybe even later on in the year, uh, how can they find you?
2: Yeah, my Twitter is at the v a n n z e e. And then uh, we, it's SB Nation, who I blog for. And our Mac-centric blog is actually Hustle Belt. So if you go to Google and you type in Hustle Belt blog, you'll uh, bring up some of the best Mac coverage you can find.
0: Hey, Zach. Well, uh, I hope you're going to load up on the coffee Saturday night. Uh, kickoff is at 11 p.m. Eastern, which is a uh, cruel and unusual punishment. But that's what you get for for playing a West Coast team on that turf. But uh, yeah. really...
2: Yeah. I, I I might have to see if I can use your uh, pac Twelve Network login. I don't I don't think I get that out here.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that that's I guess it, it, insult to injury. Uh, need to stay up that late and then finding a, an actual streaming link for
2: that. Oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's
0: that's uh like life of a, a football media member in uh, 2022, I guess. Well, Zach, uh, thank you uh, so much, and uh, good, good luck. Good luck to Eastern Michigan uh, for the rest of the season.
2: Thank you. Good luck to Arizona State.
0: And that'll do it for this episode of the Devils Junkies podcast. I'd like to thank my guest again, my staff member, Cole Topham, and Zach Venuenzi, who covers Eastern Michigan for SB Nation. If you don't want to miss one iota of our pregame coverage of the Eastern Michigan contest, as well as our in-game and post-game coverage from that contest, make sure you're a premium subscriber on devilsitis.com. You heard uh, Cole Topham earlier in the podcast And on our front page, we already have a very detailed breakdown of that Oklahoma State loss, specifically what went right and what went wrong for the Arizona State offense in that game and what are some of the key areas the Sun Devils need to concentrate on from here on out. So if you're a premium subscriber on those are the type of features that you'll never miss and really gain some valuable insight into the Sun Devils. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. Have a good weekend, and we will talk to you next week.
1: I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.